Welcome to the One Question Podcast, brought to you by Wabi Sabi Studios. I'm your host, Michelle Cox, and I love having unlikely conversations on uncomfortable topics. It's a huge passion of mine, so much so that I wrote a few books a while back that challenge people's notion on living a life more unconventionally. This entire podcast stems around one question. If there was one topic you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? Every person that helped me on that journey, they had a story that would break your heart, that all experienced loss, that all experienced trauma, that all experienced something that had that defining moment in their life. And and they would say the same thing. Life is, is hard. We don't need to make it any harder on ourselves. I've worked in a few factories in my life, if only this kind of factory existed when I was a kid. I'm talking about the Kindness Factory, a global not-for-profit organisation and movement which inspires ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Not only is this the most interesting not-for-profit I've ever heard of, but the founder is one seriously fascinating and kind, of course, human. I'm thrilled to sit down with Kath Koshal today as her story is probably not like any you've ever heard before. A former professional cricketer and Ironman competitor, Kath has defied all medical prognosis by teaching herself to walk, not on one occasion, but on three separate occasions. Can't even comprehend like the sort of stuff she's been through, but we're about to dig into that more. Despite facing other serious personal, mental and physical setbacks, her resilience allowed her to not only overcome these challenges, but also see the good in the world when most others couldn't. In November 2015, she founded Kindness Factory with a goal of encouraging and inspiring one million acts of kindness. Well, to date, they have logged over three million acts of kindness and Kath has raised close to half a million dollars for various charity organisations and was the recipient of the 2016 Pride of Australia medal for showing courage in the face of extreme adversity. And Kath was also awarded the Young Australian Medal and the People's Choice of Australia Award in 2017. Yes, she is one epic human. Kath's bio makes it a little daunting to meet her, I must say. But she's one seriously beautiful person who is changing the world for the better. But as you're about to hear, you couldn't meet a more down-to-earth person if you tried. Kath, it is so good to get to sit down with you after all these years. We haven't caught up for a while. Welcome to the pod. Wow, thanks for having me. What a pleasure. Fantastic. I can't wait to see where we go. You do such interesting work in the space that you have been in for the last few years. But let's kick right in. If there is one thing that you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? Be unnecessary suffering, which... It's going to take a fair bit to explain because there's, uh, it's not really a thing and I reckon most people who have heard me on a podcast or speak or read my book or anything like that would probably would have guessed that it would have been kindness and it will link back to that for sure but that's something that I, I want to talk more about and I want society to start talking more about as well. So unnecessary suffering, I imagine like there's a lot of ways we could sort of go with this. So give me a bit more insight into one, why this is a topic you're passionate about and and feel that we need to talk about. And two, like, what does it mean? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a good question too because there's not much science or literature out there about this topic and it's always been something that I've thought about but probably didn't have words or a framework to put around it to explain exactly what what I meant by this feeling that I had that I was noticing around the world wherever I went. And uh, last year I wrote a book and it just kept popping up as this theme as I'd write certain chapters within this book and life at the best of times is bloody hard. It really is. And I'm not the only person in the world to have endured adversity and hardship and accidents and things like that. I, I know you have, a lot of my friends are going through hard times at the moment. And these are things that are completely beyond our control. So we go through or we experience grief and loss and cancer diagnosis and uh, natural disasters happen and we can't control that. And we have to grind through that in life and we have to you know, go through an element of suffering to process that. Why, therefore, is there so much man-made suffering, which I refer to as unnecessary suffering? So things like bullying, domestic violence, gun violence, war, terrorism, completely man-made suffering and adversity. I don't think that there has to be, and I think that's where the link to kindness comes and why I feel so passionate about the link between that and kindness is that kindness can be the perfect antidote to all of this unnecessary suffering and the hardship that we endure that is man-made and I guess that's what my, my my secret mission has has become. A lot of people would think it's to make the world a kinder place. For me, it's to eradicate unnecessary suffering because, as I mentioned up top, life's bloody hard at the best of times, and I, I can't really. It doesn't make any sense to me to make it any harder on ourselves through these things that we place on ourselves. So. That's what I wanted to talk about today, yeah. Oh, I love it. It's, there's so much there. I reckon I could speak to you for hours on this stuff, so I'm going to have to be really clear with my questions, but I'm like thinking, well, where do I start? It's really interesting, and the way you describe that, you know, about all the different elements of man-made, I mean, to me, you know, as we travel the world and you see some pretty horrific things that happen or, you know, even in some of the political stuff that's happening with Russia and Ukraine and stuff right now as, as we speak, what's your view on how do we get here? How do we get in these places that, as you said, like bullying and especially online, but, you know, wars, I mean, this unnecessary suffering that is so bloody obvious that could just stop. But is it a bigger thing around consciousness, you know, that human sort of connection element? Where, where do you kind of come from with that? I'd love to have all the answers. I've, I've got a few thoughts on why and, and how and, and, you know, potentially some reasoning, but I don't think anyone would really have that answer nailed yet. You know, I'm not a mum. I'd, I'd love to be one one day, but I'm a, I'm a very proud auntie. I've got five nephews and a, a niece and two of them were kind of born when I was going through a really rough period of my own life and I connected with them so strongly because there were a lot of people around me when I was going through this significant period and patch of adversity that really, they were there to support absolutely and and they did a great job of that but they kind of grappled with what do you say to a person who's going through all this stuff and all that kind of stuff and so I've had this beautiful connection with especially one of my nephews and I've been able to watch him grow from a, you know, a newborn into he's now 12. And, you know, when they're a newborn, obviously they can't talk, they can't communicate. Someone's got to provide for them to do everything for them. You know, they hit toddler age, they start walking, they start talking, they're three. They don't care who they're playing with, what colour skin they got, what religion they're into, what socioeconomic background, what brand they wear or anything like that. 
you know, then you hit kindergarten and some things start to creep in because you're getting influences from other areas and all those sorts of things. And then the bullying sort of starts a couple of years later and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the rest is kind of history. Like this innocence gets beaten out of us a little bit along the way. And it could be, and it's not a judgment on parents by any stretch, but our parents' opinion of us, for example, might change the way that we behave towards others for whatever reason. And that's not a bad thing or a good thing or anything. It just is, I guess. And that's just how we learn and grow. But no one's born to hate. Like it's not innately within us to hate or to cause harm or pain. And I reckon really the true essence of being alive is, you know, what's the purpose of life? I've come close to to death a couple of times. I remember one of them, I, I remember coming out of it going, I'm a bit upset or annoyed that I've come this close to that and I still don't know what the meaning of life is. Because you've looked down the eye of that, you know, knowing that innate feeling of going, holy shit, like I may not be here tomorrow and really kind of not wallowing, but really going into the depths of that, I guess. And I know everyone's experience would be different, but I use that to drive me. And I've used that to, you know, to your point about not sweating the small stuff or, you know, being kinder to others and, and knowing that everyone's got so much shit going on in their life. But I've never heard that before of like, you know, I'm missing, missing something. What am I supposed to get out of it? That's brilliant. Yeah. Well, I think the older I got and the more experiences I had and the things that I did and people that I learned from, I kind of realized that we we're born to connect, if nothing else, you know, to, to connect with people. We innately want to be around people. We're social beings. We look at, you know, the loneliness epidemic that we're currently in the midst of. People are struggling, especially Gen Z. They don't know how to connect in a meaningful way outside of technology. So really, if it was if we're born to connect, I guess the purpose then is is it to love and to be loved, and that doesn't have to be romantically. Of course, it could be through your parents or your caregiver or a friend. And love comes in all sorts of of places. We're social beings. We all crave a sense of belonging, to belong to something bigger than ourselves. So if that's a friendship group, the gym that we go to, where we work, uh, a family, whatever it is, and if we're not getting that in one of those traditional settings that I've just mentioned, you know, you you look at boy soldiers, for example, they get bullied at school or they're segregated within their community. Someone reaches out saying, hey, we'll accept you. Come and do this with us. For the first time in their life, sometimes they're feeling a sense of belonging to something bigger than themselves. And and I think that's what we all crave as as human beings. And so if I don't fit into a, a group because, you know, they're bullying and I don't stand for that and all that kind of stuff, but I'm going to be isolated if I don't take the plunge and, and move into that kind of way of being, then I'm going to be segregated and lonely and, and no one really wants that. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting in the work you do. And I guess if we kind of dig into that a little bit more and how you, how, how did you get here? You know, like you've gone through such adversity in your own life. And, you know, one of the things that you talk about is like having to teach yourself how to, you know, walk again three times. Like, most people don't have to do that once, Kath. Like, that's huge. And I think you, you're the kind of person, you know, just get shit done. Like, you know, move on, like, positive and you take it on the chin and you, uh, you know, move forward. But you must have times where you've got to reflect and go, well, how much more do I need to, to be thrown at? <laughs> what am I missing? That's what I think. It's like, what, what lesson am I missing here? Why do I keep having this stuff happen to me? So I'm curious about your view on how you overcome such adversity and how you've done that in life and how you get up every morning you get one lens in life and and I don't know any different I don't know what it's like to to live a day in your shoes or or anyone else's for that matter 
So I don't know any different in in that sense. I think one of the protective factors that I, you know, I'm often labelled as resilient and I've I've never identified with that word. I, I don't really like it, to be honest, because I think it leaves less room for being human. So if all these people around the world are telling me that I'm super resilient and, you know, they want to look to me to for strategies on how to develop resilience in their own life, it kind of makes me feel like I can never have a blip, I can never cry, I can never, you know, crash or have a low moment and all those sorts of things. And I'd love everyone to know that I absolutely have bad days. I'm a, a human being just like the rest of the world. I often kind of, you know, I've always had, I've, I come from a really big family. I've got three older brothers family roots are in the bush so you kind of have a greater sense of perspective and and belonging in the bush as well so I've always had a great sense of community I'm not someone who's ever lacked support please don't think that I've ever done any of my life by myself I haven't I've always had an incredible support network my family are amazing my friends are saints the patience of saints they have because I'm incredibly frustrating to deal with because uh, I can be very stubborn. Self-aware, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I think they love me for that as well. So having broken my back twice, uh, the first time it happened, I was a professional athlete. And I think I've always had this curiosity for life. I remember reading Edith Egar's book. It's called The Choice. She was a Holocaust survivor turned psychologist. And she referred to, I guess, striving for, you know, the difference between being childish and childlike. So striving to have a curiosity about life, which is childlike. So never losing that kind of naivety and innocence and curiosity for life and wanting to be playful and all those sorts of things versus childish is, you know, making decisions that don't really reflect our own behaviours and and values and choices and things like that. And I think I've always had a childlike naivety about me. So the first time I broke my back, not only do I not believe them that I wouldn't walk again, but I was convinced that I'd get back on the cricket park and play for Australia, for example. So whilst that didn't happen, it was a really good recipe for me to be able to get myself back on track and walk without no feeling in one of my legs and, and things like that. So I think that's always been quite helpful for me as well. Um, and just as, as I mentioned, a curiosity for life and, and, and people really. I remember being in rehab I was there for 12 months and in my first month uh, I was supposed to be in the neuro ward because I had a spinal cord injury and they didn't have beds there so I was in the geriatric ward. So my, my best friends became two 85-year-old patients. One was a war veteran who was a Holocaust survivor who had to have been the happiest man I've ever met yet he'd faced the most atrocious things in life that someone could face. And I, I realised then that happiness was a choice just like everything else through watching his behaviour and then my best mate from rehab was a, an 85-year-old lady who I called her Daisy. That wasn't actually a name. It was Iris. I called her Daisy because she called me Alice. So she thought I was her granddaughter. She had dementia, had suffered a stroke. And I used to sit there for hours on end listening to her tell me stories. I'd take her a cup of tea and she'd tell me stories for hours. And, and they were the most fascinating stories I've ever heard, I reckon. I don't reckon any, any of them were true, but they were really cool stories. I think that, you know, a genuine curiosity, the thing I love most about being alive is, is knowing that if there's 8 billion people in the world, every single one of us is different and that's completely okay. Like I love that we're all different. I reckon the world would be bloody boring if we're all the same. So that's what I love about life, to be honest, like learning so much from people and, and what their stories are and, and the art of storytelling and any person that walks the face of the earth has a story. So it's pretty cool to think about it like that. 
So you started a business called The Kindness Factory. Where did that come from and what is it that you do? Well, I come from, as I mentioned, I was a professional athlete. I played cricket and, you know, I've always been a pretty decent person. But, uh, you know, I'm until the age of 23 when I broke my back for the first time. If it didn't involve around sleeping, eating, training or anything in the pursuit of being a better athlete, it really wasn't in my thought process. Breaking your back, you know, and not being able to walk and or live or be independent or anything like that, it really gives you a great sense of humility in terms you've got to go back to a lot of the basics. You can't even shower by yourself. I met and fell in love with a, a fellow patient at rehab and, and he was the love of my life. And unfortunately, he passed away via suicide. And that led to me having a, a mental breakdown. It was 10 months after his passing and I, I just lost all sense of self, to be honest. I was 24. I'd lost this dream of playing cricket and then I lost the person who told me that was so much more to life than hitting a ball around a park. And at 24, I, I didn't have the coping skills to be able to keep up with overcoming those two things, really. I didn't know how to cope. It wasn't that I was afraid of accessing support. It was more, what do I do with these thoughts that are continuously swirling in my mind? And it was a moment, in a, I was in a wheelchair actually, and I was feeling pretty low. And I remember thinking to myself, this is the rest of my life, right? I'd, I'd gotten to an elevator and I was close to tears because I just had a team meet with my doctors and they sort of said to me, um, pretty much a 90% chance that you're not going to walk. So I'm pretty shattered. And I got to the elevator near to tears in a public sort of place and I went to try and reach the lift button to get downstairs and because I knew that if I could get into the safety of my room, I could let all this emotion out. And I couldn't reach the button because I'm in this chair and it was too low to the ground and it was just out of reach. And I was still just quite disabled. I, I, I still have a disability now, but I just couldn't reach it. And it was that moment where I was like, I've just been handed this news. That didn't break me. But the, the sheer notion of this being like me centimetres out of reach is the thing that's really been my undoing right now. And I thought, this is the rest of my life. I'm going to struggle for the rest of my life with things like this. And a stranger walked past as I was just had, had my head down and he saw that. I think he could see what was going on. He must have seen me try and reach. And he pressed that button for me. And I didn't see it happen. He kind of walked off and he must have gone to the bathroom or whatever. But I just had this ping of the elevator. And I lifted my head and I realised that he'd done that and walked off, not once wanting thanks, praise or recognition. And I thought, holy shit, that's just changed the course of my day, that, that has. Like, I can now get downstairs, I can cry, I can let all this stuff out. But by the time I got downstairs, I, I felt like I didn't need to. It was kind of like this bigger moment than myself. And I, I realised how transformative and powerful kindness towards others could be and when I was able to reflect back after losing my partner and all those sorts of things I realized that the greatest thing that stood out to me was was human kindness throughout my struggle so it wasn't the loss it wasn't the trauma it wasn't any of that the thing that was the most powerful for me was these small micro moments of kindness so I decided to just pay forward the kindness that I'd received when I was physically and mentally well enough to do so and that's really how it began. I started doing small things for others and then they started paying that forward by doing things for other people and it became something, again, bigger than myself. So it was an online blog to start and then I turned it into just this goal to reach one million acts of kindness. And I remember when we were at 10 acts of kindness on the website, it was the side project to my full-time job and all that kind of stuff. And I remember we were at 10 acts of kindness and people would come up and they weren't being mean, but they'd go, well, how many are you going for again? I'd go, oh, a million. 
And they go, mate, you're a long way from a million. But I also go, you know, we started at zero and we're on our way. So you've got to start somewhere. And, yeah, we've we're, we've logged over six million acts of kindness now from all around the world. So I got quite, like, again, quite curious and creative. The adversity sort of didn't end, you know, three years after sort of doing all that. I got into triathlons and I was on a training bike ride, training for an Ironman, actually, and with my best mate. And then I, I got cleaned up by a, a drunk driver from behind and broke my back again. And that was a sort of, it was a pretty serious accident, very near death. And I was told I'd never walk again for the second time in my life. And spent 12 months teaching myself how to walk. And then I was just feeling a bit lost again. So I decided to just, I guess the greatest thing about going through adversity is you, you learn a lot about yourself when you're in the depths of struggle, I reckon. You learn more about yourself than when you're just coasting along. And, and I knew that having been through adversity before, there were things that worked for me. So you know, it was gratitude and kindness and humour. And I thought, well, kindness was the most powerful. I'll, I'll surround myself with as much of that as I can. And so I just left home with nothing but the clothes on my back, no cash, credit card, food or water. I said I wouldn't help get help off family or friends, so I had to survive on the kindness of strangers to survive. And I didn't know how long I'd last, end up reaching news stations all around the world. And 10,000 people reached out to help me as far as, you know, Africa, America, Amsterdam, the UK. And I ended up traveling for two months off the, the kindness of complete strangers. And like I learned more about my life, about myself really in that two month period than I reckon I have the rest of my life combined. And this theme of unnecessary suffering kept popping up because for every person that, that helped me on that journey, they had a story that would break your heart they really did where like I stayed with a family of refugees who you know I'm friends with everyone that I met on that journey still to this day and that that all experienced loss that all experienced trauma that all experienced something that had that defining moment in their life where they were like now that I'm okay I just want to help others and and all those sorts of things and and they would say the same thing life is is hard we don't need to make it any harder on ourselves and you know I got invited everywhere around the world to share my story so became a very accidental motivational speaker. Kindness Factory then, you know, I was able to take that to full-time employment. We've now got a great team around that, which is fantastic. And, you know, we develop research into the scientific and psychological benefits of kindness. And we've got a kindness curriculum that is in 3,000 Aussie schools, a couple of thousand in the US and beyond that in the UK as well. So that teaches things, some of the things that we've covered off on today. So things like self-acceptance, compassion, empathy, trust, honesty, collaboration, and so forth, gratitude, humor, humility. And I guess like those are the secret ingredients to seeing more kindness in the world and eradicating unnecessary suffering, but also, you know, creating well-being and, and resilience in our kids as well. So yeah, that's sort of how it began and we're on this journey now from start up to scale up and with that comes complexities and I'm learning and growing every single day and we've just been given a great opportunity to go into corporate world as well through some micro-credentialing and consulting work, bespoke kind of culture stuff and all that kind of stuff. So it's hard to explain who we are and what we do, but hopefully that gives a bit of a a background. But amazing to hear the story as well, Kath, like a lot of that stuff I haven't sort of heard before and just really interesting to hear. You know, it's hard to keep my emotions in check here listening to some of the, I think that's it as well. I mean, you said there, there's a couple of things that really resonate um, in my life and through my kind of experiences. It's, it's often those that I've met 
that, that are the most giving, the most kind people and have gone through so much shit themselves. And so it's almost like this club, you know, that you find. It's like you meet someone, you resonate really fast with them, you think, you know, the story, and then you get to learn about it. I'm like, I could have predicted that before when the first moment I met you because there's, you know, just something about that humanising kind of element where whether it just humbles us, I don't know, as humans, and I wouldn't wish bad stuff on anyone, you know, that I know and my friends and family, but it certainly does teach you a lot, of, as you said, about yourself and about life, and it teaches you that compassion and empathy for others far more than anything else does, right? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the greatest privileges I think we have is is understanding that we, we never know what another person's going through. And, you know, I think it's so much easier to treat people with kindness, compassion and empathy than it is with hate. Like the next person that cuts in front of you, like they might be on their way to saying goodbye to a dying loved one, for example, and here you are honking your horn, sticking the bird up at him, and we don't know what's going on and it's far easier on our adrenal systems, our stress and everything like that to walk around with a sense of gratitude and compassion and understanding that it is to walk around with hate and, you know, the the world owes me because I had a bad morning and therefore you're going to be on the receiving end of whatever it is that I dish out this morning in the workplace or on the train or whatever it is. And And it has a reverberating effect, right? This is the thing about, you know, we talk about energy transference and, you know, when you kind of come into a room and people go, oh, that's a load of shit or that, you know, like people's aura and stuff. I'm like, surely you've gone into a room and you felt either the room is energised or the room is really sick, you know, like there's something going on. You can feel that. So it's the same where, you know, you're having a bad day and then you project that on someone else, whether it is in your car or your work colleague or your family. And it does this whole kind of train of motion. So I always think about the opposite of that. It's like, oh, okay, I'm having a shit time, but Whew, I need to just re, you know, and to your point, we all have bad days. It's not like we're not all Pollyanna, but how can I, how can I have a better impact on others around me? You know, I might be having a shit time, but I'm like, that's no one else's problem. And I need to just, you know, change up my energy and, you know, fake it a little bit and then I'll get through to, you know, sometimes I find that that's like you just one foot in front of the other and then your day gets better. It's, it's the thing I wonder about with different people I know that have so much shit happen to them all the time. I was like, when are you going to wake up that you need to actually change your energy? <laughs> like there's something going on here. You have this thing going on with the universe. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think like that comes, you know, out of all the kindness attributes, there's 12 that we sort of promote. And I used to get asked all the time, like what what's the most important for society? And I'd say, oh, you can't really pick a, a favorite it's like having a favorite child or whatever and the more I've learned about it I think we all need to come from a place of well self-acceptance would be the answer now and I believe that is because you can't have self-acceptance unless you've got self-awareness and I think society in general lacks a lot of that and that's not to you know for me to stand here on my high horse and all that kind of stuff because I'm far from perfect like I make 10 mistakes a day at least I reckon and I probably frustrate those closest to me more than I even know, even though they tell me that I do a lot. You know, I've got ADHD, all those sorts of things. So I am hard to deal with at the best of times because I'm just a hot mess and always all over the place. But at least I sort of understand my strengths and weaknesses. So I know that my stubbornness can get in the way of a lot of things for sure. And sometimes it just takes a friend to go, you've been really stubborn. I'll go, I am. Let's backtrack. But something, um, I, you know, I must have heard it on a podcast. Maybe it was one of yours. I'm not sure. But 
It was probably about two years ago, and I think that told me in really good stead is, you know, if you are having a bad day or it's high stress or whatever, and my dad's a good example of this actually. He was a cop for 40 years. And I remember my brothers and I went to his retirement ceremony and we're in this room and they're giving him all these medals and stuff like that. And they started reading out a list of medals, achievements and kind of career highlights that he'd done and received. And I remember like kind of nudging one of my brothers going, I didn't know that. Like, did you know that? And he's like, no, I didn't know that either. And I'm like, so I got home that night and I said to dad, because we had like pizzas and did all that. I said, dad, why didn't, like, why, how do we not know any of that? And he said, Kath, being a cop, it's a different career, all that kind of stuff. When I got to the front door and I was about to walk in, I, you know, made a conscious effort to say, right, now I'm a dad. Like I've just been on the beat and I've had to see all the things and do all the things and be amongst it all. But when I take a step into this household, I'm a dad and I want to be present with my kids and do all that. And so he's a good example of it, but I, I heard this notion of it about two years ago where I was like, who do I want to be when I get home, even though I've had a stressful day and, you know, I want to love my partner and I want him to know that he gets all of my energy and my presence when I'm there. So I don't do it every time, but whenever I get to our front door, it's sort of like a couple of deep breaths and going, right, the stress of work or whatever happened today, it stops here and I want to be present with him. I can tell him about my day and how stressful it was, but I'm not going to be grumpy and short with him because of everything else that's happened to me today. So I felt like that was a, a good one that really helps you practice a bit of self-awareness of your own, as you said, energy and how you're showing up for the people that that matter to you really. Mm, so true. It's And it's such a good little, you know, thing to remember. It's like either sit in the car and just kind of decompress because it's a physical thing. You're coming through the door at home and to try and go, okay, wash that off. You know, some people have a real visual. It's almost like a cape that they're like, oh, like your dad, you know, cop superhero cape. <laughs> it's like leaves it at the door. <laughs> it's a good to have that kind of visual for yourself when you walk in. I love the fact you're talking about the self-awareness piece. And I think the other part for that, for me, is I've observed with people as well is that, that self-compassion. It's about being a bit more gentler on yourself too. You know, we're so hard on ourselves and much harder than, especially as women and our bodies and all the things and, you know, much harder than we would ever be to a mate, you know, and trying to sort of tell people just be gentler and that that voice in your head, like think about would I ever say that to Kath? You know, if I was having a drink with her and would I, would I use that language and talk about her in that way and say that? So don't say that to yourself, you know, treat yourself as a best mate and be kinder because, you know, you have to be with yourself every day, all day. <laughs> you know, it's nicer to be a bit gentle. There's so many questions I have for you, but I think one of the things I really wanted to um, pick up on was the two months that you travelled on Out of the Kindness of Others, and you said you learnt so much about yourself through that time. Can you share just a, like one or two of the main things that was like the most incredible part of that experience? Because like, I, I don't know anyone that's ever done that. And I can't imagine, you know, many people would do that type of thing, but must have been phenomenal. Yeah, it was. And I'll start by saying how privileged I am. Like I'm a white woman who's never really had to struggle outside of my adversities. Like we don't come from wealth, but I've always had a lot of love and so I, I realised and recognised how privileged it must sound for me to have just gone, I want some love and I'm going to go and do this. But in some ways, you know, I kind of left that that morning on the 12th of August in 2016 feeling pretty broken. It was after the second broken back and I'd, I'd had all this trauma and stuff like that and I, I really wanted to reaffirm my belief in kindness and it did that in spades. I 
I was so nervous when I left, like, because there were so many unknowns. But I come back probably the most fulfilled and full of perspective and love and gratitude than I've ever had. And I kind of haven't stopped since. I don't, I, I pay my own way and I do all that kind of stuff now. But I just get to meet all these amazing people. And I, I knew on the first night, so I left eight o'clock on a Friday morning and I knew by the first night I'd been to all parts of Sydney already that day. And I ended up in this beautiful family's house in Fairlight, actually, in the Northern Beaches, Ruth and her boys, it was the Parkers. And they would sort of bunked in together in their room. And I got there at about eight and it was well past their bedtime, but they'd stayed up and you know, they were giggling by the time I got there. This is a complete stranger walking into their home and, and they just trusted me. And we ended up chatting over a glass of wine, me and the parents. And next day I got to be a pretend auntie to the boys at soccer. And I knew then that it would change my life. I, I truly did because I knew that I'd already met sort of six incredible people and the stories just kept coming. And, and I think it was the greatest gift was perspective, to be honest, because as I said, every person that I met had a, a story that would break your heart like they they really did and and I think they'd heard my story and they resonated with that because they'd struggled and suffered too and so there's no favorites but a family that stood out to me was uh was the Veras oh god it chokes me up that's what my book's about so it was about the two months and the characters I met and thankfully and sorry we keep talking about your book but the um actual title is kindness but it's a beautiful blue book with yellow writing and you, you can't miss it and a great big smiley face which is your kind of icon as well so and it's what surviving on the kindness of strangers taught me about perspective connection and happiness but i'll do a link in the show notes but sorry to interject but we keep talking about it but people must buy your book and hear more about this cat because it's so fascinating oh uh, thanks yeah continue on this family i remember because i'd put this call out on social media here's what i'm doing i'm leaving on this day at this time and then just got flooded with offers because it was on major news stations and this family there were three of them there were six in this family and there were three with the same surname and the same location that had reached out to say hey our place is yours we don't have much you can have a roof over your head and, and we'll give you love and, and when it all started happening and went viral and all that, had just offers coming left, right and centre, I was like, and I'm not a very organised person, as mentioned, and I'm just going to have to pick the ones that resonate with me and I'll figure out the logistics later. And thankfully, it just all worked out, which was great. But I was like, I have to go there. And so I reached out to all three of them and they had no idea that the other one had done that. So they're like, oh, I did surge reach out. Oh, I did Claude reach out. And so I was like, okay, this is going to be incredible. So... I get there and I learned that they were a, a family of refugees that was in Camden in Sydney. The dad was part of the Chilean dictatorship in 1986 and he was wrongfully imprisoned. He was tortured daily. He's got whip marks on his back still and all that kind of stuff. His wife, Iris, she petitioned the Catholic government or something in Chile. They wouldn't allow him out, so she broke into the prison one night and they escaped, essentially got on a boat, came to Australia got pregnant on the boat, had their firstborn Claude in a detention centre. And then once they were out of that, they sort of ended up having three children. And they had the most incredibly heartbreaking stories that you could imagine. Claude would tell me how she'd go to school and her parents couldn't speak English. So she would have to read the notes that the teachers were sending home to her parents. They've suffered all sorts of racial abuse. They've suffered the depths of 
despair that that we just don't even have to think about coming from a place like we do in Australia. And I spent three days with them and I had a conversation with Serge because this was very early on in the journey. And I remember just breaking down in tears and I said, how do you do this? Like Serge, you've been through so much yet you're just here, happy living, doing your best, all that kind of stuff. And And he said, Kath, I'll I'll tell you my secret. I wake up every morning. I live in chronic back pain from all the torture I I endured. But I've got a beautiful family. So when I wake up, I'm naked and I get out of bed and I look at myself in the mirror and I'm still hunched over. And he says, and I just look at myself and I say, God, I'm beautiful. (laughs) And I kind of then, similar to, you know, my rehab experience, meeting Attila, who was the war veteran, the Holocaust survivor, I was kind of like, this is all a choice, just like anything life and you know the more time I spent with them the more I was like my life in in comparison is is absolutely put into perspective here and we should never compare adversities I don't know what it's like to live like they do and and they don't know what it's like to be to be me but it was a dose of reality and perspective that I I absolutely needed and from there on in I I didn't want to leave like I you know it was ready to go I was I was going to Melbourne after that and someone had paid for my airfare and I was like I had to go with it and do all that kind of stuff but like, how do I leave this incredible family? And Iris, the mum, who was really the glue of that family, would have only been two years after that journey. She got uh, terminal brain cancer. I was so honoured. Um, they reached out in her, you know, last three days of being alive and said she really wants to see you. It, it's such a privilege to know that family. It, it truly is. And to have been there in those moments, to be able to sing and dance with them as we sort of said goodbye to her was just something that I'll never, ever forget. And as I said, like I, there were so many characters that I got to meet on that journey that it's exactly the same kind of feeling. It's just so much love and, and connection, really. That's what life's about. It's about connecting with others and, and helping each other out when we need it because we're all humans and we all struggle. And that's what it's about, just showing up for each other and, and being there, really. So there's some of the smaller moments that happened throughout that journey. It, it was wild. It was full of laughter and love and connection, really. But it was it was honestly mind-blowing, yeah. Oh, amazing. And, you know, I, you, you sort of think about those sort of stories and, you know, all that whole experience. And my mind kind of goes to the danger side of you know, single female going, because I've traveled by myself a lot around the world and people always go, really? You travel by yourself to South America or to, you know, all these wild and wonderful places. And I'm like, yeah, you've got to keep your wits about you. But, you know, like to your point, you always find, and when you are by yourself, people are so kind. But obviously you didn't have any concerns about, you know, your safety at any time or any anyone that did anything bad like in that sense did you have any negative experiences um yeah there there are a couple and again documenting the book like dad being a cop he sees the world a bit differently to me he's seen a lot of the ugliness of humanity and he made me he put a tracking device on my I took a backpack with a toothbrush and I knew that it would get full with food and things as people helped me but he put a tracking device on my backpack so he was quite worried and they didn't want me to do it I didn't tell anyone I was doing I just put this call out on social media my parents started calling me immediately going no you're not you are not doing it it's like not a chance in hell I was like 29 at the time all these people were offering you know support via money or food or whatever it was and I wasn't accepting cash I, I didn't want to live like that I just wanted to be through connection but I, a couple of adventurers kind of reached out who sort of, you know, hitchhike and do all that kind of stuff saying, hey, like, let me know if you run into any trouble because I had a phone to document everything. But just a word of advice, when you go to bed, always know where you're going to sleep the next night and you won't run into any trouble. 
And that was a really good rule. Like I, I found that really practical and great advice. But I did run into trouble when someone had said they'd put me up and it all fell through through no fault of their own. It was just situational. And again, just it just kind of worked out. It was I was very lucky on the trip. I, I had $20 to my name. I was 15K away from where I was supposed to be. And then started raining. I was walking towards there. I was like, I'm either going to get drenched and, and very sick or I spend $20 on this taxi to get to where I need to get to next. Then the accommodation then fell through. And then someone had learned about that through social media and they just booked me a, a hotel. So I then had to make a choice. Do I get wet while walking to the hotel or do I just get there and go without food for the night? So I ended up getting into the taxi and I said, can I just get $20 worth of a fare to this location? And he kind of looked at me curious and he said, $20, that's all I've got. Just get me as close as you can to here. And he goes, I know who you are. You're that girl doing that kindness thing. And I said, I, I am. So then we ended up in a conversation sort of going, tell me more about this. And I, I checked the meter and it's at like $19. I was like, mate, you're going to have to stop. And he's like, bugger that. Like, keep your 20 bucks. I just want to learn more about this story. So it kind of just worked out. Like I was very lucky. I stayed in, a, in the NT. I ended up getting there and the operational manager of, of the battered women's shelter and I was staying at her house and blindfolded, she'd drive me to the shelter uh, so I could help volunteer and do all those sorts of things. And I, I learned their stories and, and there I am. And, you know, we're in a group setting one day and they're like, you know, let's share what's going on for us at the moment. And they said, Kath, your turn. And I sat there just going, I'm a complete fraud. Like, how is it that I'm on this journey where people are helping me, but no one's helping these guys? Like, that to me is just ridiculous. It's humbling, isn't it, that type of stuff? Yeah. So, again, adversity is a relative experience. Like, I've, I've gone through a lot, absolutely no doubting that. But I'm no different to anyone else who's gone through hardship as well. Like, there's a, a lot of us out there that are, are struggling, that will have struggled and it's so relative, like, and I don't think we should ever compare. We don't, we don't know what someone's going through, we really don't, and, and we never will because we don't know what it's like to live through another's lens. So we can try and guess and have empathy and compassion, of course, but we'll never truly know, ever. So true, and I think it's a beautiful way to kind of wind this up, and as I said, I literally could speak to you for hours, so it's probably the longest podcast we've done. <laughs> You're so such a fascinating human, honestly. I want to finish with, the point where you said about happiness as a choice, because that has resonated so much with me. And it's something that, you know, I really believe in as well. But for anyone listening that, you know, go, yeah, yeah, you know, I know it's a choice, but I'm having a shitty time or I find it really hard to shift my brain. If you got any tips, how do you make it a choice? You know, how, how do you change that when you are in the depths of despair or get that sort of perspective what would you say to someone yeah I mean you know I'm often accused sometimes you know when I say happiness is a choice oh, oh that's just toxic positivity and that's a real thing but I, I do disagree with the way that I mean that in that I don't think positivity is you know going around pretending that everything's flowery and rainbowy and full of love hearts and all and that life's amazing for all of us I don't think that's what positivity is for me how I would define positivity is, you know, in the depths of despair, you're able to have the shittiness of, and you, you can cry all day and you can lie on the lounge and you can do all that. You absolutely have the right to do that. And I've done it. And you have to do it in the moment because you can't run from your adversity. 
for me, positivity is knowing in those depths of despair and in those darker moments that not today, maybe not even by the end of the week or at the end of the month or the year, not today, not then, but one day it's going to get better, like it will. That's what I mean by happiness being a choice, that, you know, it might not be today that we choose happiness and it might not be tomorrow or the end of the week, but it will be one day and we'll find it again. And I think combining those two notions is really important when you are struggling because it's hard to see a way out and see a finish line when you're in that darkness. I've been there. It's tough. I genuinely at one point never thought I would ever find happiness again or smile and it happens. You'll get there. Just just try and find a tiny slither of hope and everything will be okay for sure. Such a beautiful conversation with you. Thank you so much for being on the show and I'm going to chase you up and we're going to have a drink together because I want to get to know you more. So thanks so much, Cass. It's just been wonderful to chat to you. Yeah, likewise. And thanks for all you do. Well, there you have it. Wasn't that an incredible conversation? I hope you enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you. If you did like it, can I ask a small favour? Please rate and review on your listening platform for me. I know everyone asks this, but it seriously makes a difference to help get these conversations out in the world and makes all the hard work and effort I put into this for you all the more worthwhile. And until next time, if you have one question you'd like to ask me, hit me up on my socials or jump on my website michellejcox.com.